everybody. Uh, I've brought you up here to one of my favorite places up on the mountain, overlooking the Valley of Granada. Uh, what you can see behind me is the Vega of Granada where over 500,000 Spaniards live. And just outside of the city center of Granada, there's 40 towns. And of those 40 towns, we've identified 24 in which there's yet to be a Christian presence there. What we mean by that is that there's not a single believer that lives in these towns and there's no church present where people can hear the gospel. And we believe that God has called us to this place at this time to see a disciple-making movement happen here in Granada. So the question comes up, what's it gonna take to make this happen? Well, as we look across the history of the world and the globe, uh, different places where there have been similar gospel movements, we've asked the question, what are the factors that it takes to see this happen? Well, there's one factor that's present in every gospel movement throughout the history of the world, and that's intentional and extraordinary prayer. And so as we seek to be intentional and extraordinary in our prayer efforts for this place, our team has created a prayer network that's called We Pray for Spain. And our goal with We Pray for Spain is simply that we would mobilize the global church to pray for this place. I'm reminded of a parable that Jesus told of a persistent widow who was dealing with an unjust judge. And she pleaded over and over again that this unjust judge would issue her justice. And at the end of the parable, we see that this, this judge, who wasn't even a good judge, gave her the justice that she pleaded for simply because she persisted. And I have to believe that as we persist in praying to a just and a loving God, that he will hear our prayers and that he will answer on behalf of the Spanish people that have yet to know him. If you want to be part of We Pray for Spain, it's really simple. All you have to do is go to our website, weprayforspain.com, and give us your email address. We're looking for 5,000 voices, 5,000 people that would commit to praying for Spain on a weekly basis. We do believe uh, that God's going to answer our prayers. It's just a matter of persisting and praying for the Spanish people. We hope that you'll join us at WePrayForSpain.com. Good morning. Hey, if you are new around here, um, the young lady on the video was Deanna Lynn. A few months ago, uh, we were really privileged uh, to commission her to the mission field. And so if you were here, you remember she came up on stage, all of our elders, we got together, prayed over her and sent her out. Uh, her dad preached a great sermon that day. And so now she's there doing mission work. And she is, uh, a couple days ago, got in touch with me and asked about asking all of us to join this prayer movement. I said, hey, yeah, we can do that. And she said, I have a video, here it is. And I watched the video on Thursday and thought, why would we wait? Uh, we're going to show it this Sunday, and so um, it's an invitation for you. Now, later on this week, you can actually go to New Hope's website, newhopecc.net, and you'll be able to watch that video again and have a box to sign up to join this prayer team. Um, I've already signed up. Some of you already have as well. You just get an email once a week. It's just a directed prayer request, like, hey, pray specifically for this this week, and then want 5,000 people uh, to join this prayer team. So we're asking all of you, weprayforspain.com, or um, jump onto our website, so you can be praying for the mission work that Deanna's doing. Um, speaking of prayer, we want to start our services on a, a somber note. Many of you are familiar with the tragedy that took place in Zionsville. All three services. Just a horrible evil that took place. Um, two young kids' lives were taken uh, by their dad, and then he took his own life. It's a horrible, horrible thing. And... Uh, 
really painful, and it touches the lives of a lot of people here at New Hope. A lot of you young people went to school with them, and you're hurting, and you're confused, and uh, there's no clear-cut, cookie-cutter answer to this kind of pain other than to lean into truth and the truth that we know in Jesus. But I want to ask for you to pray specifically for something. There's two young people that got involved in our youth group early on um, when I was here, uh, Jacob and Lexia Shelton, and we were connected to their parents as a result, uh, Scott and Claire Shelton, and uh, Claire is the sister to the mom who was left behind. Um, and Scott is the pastor at Zionsville Presbyterian Church. He's got a weight on his... He's a grieving uncle. He's a grieving brother-in-law, and he's got a pastor, a church, and a community that's hurting. It's just hard. And I want us to pray for them. I want you to pray. If you write down, please write down the names Scott and Claire Shelton. And please pray for Zionsville Presbyterian Church and the ministry that they're, they're doing. I'm going to be quiet for a little while. We're just going to have some silence. It's uncomfortable at times. I get it. I know that. We're just going to pray. And then after a little bit of quiet reflection and prayer, I'll close this out and we'll keep going this morning. Let's pray. Father, there are some evils and tragedies that we face in this life that we can't wrap our minds around, and this is definitely one of them. We just don't know the answers. Our feelings can take us in a thousand different directions. Our thoughts can take us down some pretty dark roads. And it's in times like this, God, we want to lean into your truth. The truth that Jesus has made a promise to us and that he has never broken a promise and he will fulfill the promise that there will be a day where there will be no more tears. There will be a day when you wipe every tear from our eyes and pain and death will be no more. But God, while we're waiting for that day, it hurts. And so I pray this morning for you to give a supernatural, because I don't know how else it's possible, a supernatural amount of your peace to this hurting family, to Stephanie, the mom, to Scott and Claire, and their kids and their church. We pray specifically for Zionsville Presbyterian Church as Scott leads through his pain and their pain together. Give him your wisdom and your guidance. Father, we pray for all those who will be involved in the coming days helping this family through this process. And we pray for wisdom, for peace, for support. And God, we believe that if we lean in to your truth in a time of need, you will meet us. You will provide a peace that really goes beyond our understanding because we need that. And we lift this to you in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, If you have a Bible, you can open it to Hebrews chapter 5.
We're in a series um, that we normally do here at New Hope. We usually walk through books of the Bible. We just preach God's truth, and uh, we wrestle with texts that are enjoyable and texts that are difficult. Today has a little bit of both. And so we're going to continue this series we have um, looking at how Jesus really is better. He's the solution uh, to everything. And while you're turning to Hebrews chapter 5, if you're um, new to the church family here, if you've just been visiting, you know, you don't know this, but if you've been here for a while, you know that I like to talk a lot about my kids uh, when I get up here to preach because they give me the best sermon illustration material ever. So it's with their permission. I always go to them for permission. And I got permission from uh, my little guy, Luke. He's six years old. Uh, to talk a little bit about him this morning. When he was two years old, he had a fascination with the character Turbo. Is anybody familiar with Turbo? He is the snail that gains superpowers and wins the Indy 500. Okay? So, yeah, it's, who thought of that? Like, what kind of bad food did you eat the night before and woke up and thought, a snail, superpowers, the Indy 500, we got a movie. Uh, but my son loved it so much that when they brought the Indy 500 uh, display we had to go see it. And so here's a picture of Luke when he's a little guy just like hugging on turbo. He's just excited. Well, as with many kids, the more you let them fall in love with fictional characters, the more they do. And so Luke actually got to a point where he believed his name was Turbo. Um, No kidding. I have video evidence here to show you in a second of a conversation that I recorded with Luke that I will play on his wedding day uh, to remind him... There was a season in life where you had a little bit of an identity crisis. Uh, check this video out. What's your name? Tavo. Luke, can I knock you out? No. Luke, can you knock me out? Ow. <laughs> that was not planned. Uh, I said, Luke, can you knock me out? And he punched me right in the mouth. Uh, <laughs> He gives me such good stuff to work with, right? He, he is such a fun kid, and I have so much fun with him. Uh, there's another one that some of you have seen this before, but I just love this illustration, too. I was in the garage, and I said, hey, buddy, we're going to go run a couple errands. Go get in the car. And what he heard was, go get on the car. And here's how I found him when I got to the van, uh, hanging on the outside of the car. <laughs> and I, I was like, no, but wait, actually, yes. Let me go get a camera, because this is priceless. <laughs> He was hanging off the edge of the car. I love it. Now, the reason I tell you these stories of Luke is because it's, one, just joy. He's just a joy. Uh, but, But also because there comes a point where I have to teach him a few lessons that it's time to grow up. And he's got to mature, and he's got to get past some of this stuff that is cute now, won't be cute later. I mean, when he's 15 years from now, and he's 21, and he's like thinking his name's Turbo, and he's punching his dad in the face, it's not going to be cool, right? Or if I say, go get in the car, and he rips the handles off my van because he hangs 200 pounds on it, like, it's not going to work, okay? Right? He has to mature, and he has to grow, because it's important that he learns that. As a matter of fact, just this past week, um, Luke, who's six years old now, doesn't think his name's Turbo. Uh, we were sitting together. He was having a hard time at school. There was a kid at recess, kind of typical. I uh, was giving him a hard time. And so, but not a hard time like a bully, a hard time like, leave me alone. Like, I just want to be able to play other things. And the kid got a little bit physical and grabbed Luke's arm and said, let's go. We're going to play this. We're going to go do this. And Luke's like, I don't know. And, he, and he's pulling on him and he's tugging on him. And he says, dad, I don't know what to do to get this kid to stop pulling on me. I said, Luke, you absolutely know what to do. You tell that little boy your name's Turbo, and you punch him in the face. I'm just kidding. 
that's not what I said. Uh, I said, hey, let's talk through it. And the conclusion we came to is this, Luke, if you just, if you just do the right thing, be kind to him, and, and you tell the truth, then I'm always going to be able to protect you. Anything goes wrong at school, I'm going to be able to come in, and if you've told the truth and you've done the right thing. But if you start lying or fabricating things, and you start not doing what you know you're supposed to do, you make it really hard for me to protect you. I'm going to do everything I can, but you make it harder. And so we had this conversation because he needed to learn a lesson that I've had to learn numerous times in my life, and maybe you've had to learn this too, about this idea of maturity. See, maturity was not so much about what we do as much as it is about who we're becoming. You see, many of us, we think to be mature, we just got to go do stuff. And so we, we want to go and work harder to accomplish more, to act a certain way, to behave a certain way. But really, maturity is about the person that you're becoming, the values that you're adopting, uh, the, the, the ability for you to discern between uh, what you know to be right and what you know to be wrong. And we get that discernment from people that pour into us and love us and care for us and allow us to mature. See, Jesus understood this. In John chapter 15, on the last night of Jesus' life, he kind of handles this idea of what it means to mature, not just in what you do, but in who you become. And he has this discussion with his disciples, and he begins to tell them, hey, it's not so much about what you do, but what you do is extremely important. And he starts to compare their relationship to him like that to a vine and a branch. And he says, I'm the vine, I'm the source of life, and you're the branch. And so you're supposed to go and produce fruit. If you're connected to the vine, your life should produce fruit. And so we read that and we think, all right, then I'm going to go produce fruit. I'm going to go act like a Christian. I'm going to go behave like a Christian. I'm going to go do things that Christians do and surround myself with the things that Christians surround themselves with. And I'm going to make this maturity thing about what I'm accomplishing. But then Jesus throws a twist on it. He says, yeah, you got to produce fruit. But you get down to verse 5 and here's what he says in John 15. He says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. But then here's the twist. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, if you don't stay connected to me, then he's thrown away like a branch that withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So he says, you might try your best to go do all these things, but you can't do any of them the way that you need to do them to mature spiritually unless you stay connected to me. What he's saying is, you can't just go do this. This is about who you're becoming as you're connected to the vine. So your connection to the vine influences who you're becoming. It shapes you, and it molds you, and it turns you into the right person. And if you're not careful, he says, you'll be broken away from that vine and thrown into the fire. So if you only try to act right, and do, but you're not becoming, you're not connecting, then you risk being broken off altogether. And you end up being a 21-year-old hanging on the side of your dad's car telling people to call you turbo. This is what the, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews is going to address for us today. This idea of what it means to really mature as a Christian, to really grow spiritually, to really pay attention, to wake up. I was talking to somebody after second service, and they said, you know, I've had to say that a lot to my kids, and then my kids had to start saying it to me. Hey, pay attention. Like, hey, listen, I've got a little guy, Noah, who's 18 months old, and if I'm holding him and he wants my attention, he grabs my face and he turns it so that I look right at him. And this is the kind of passage that's kind of grabbing us spiritually and saying, hey, pay attention. Focus. Don't lose sight of this. Beginning in verse 11 of chapter 5. About this, this idea of this Christian life and seeing the big picture, he just got done talking about uh, Melchizedek, he says that about this big picture of what God's doing, we have much to say, and it's really hard for us to explain since you've become dull of hearing. 
For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you still need someone to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. So he's like, hey, you're, when it comes to your maturity right now, you should be further along than you are. He says, some of you are qualified, you should by this point be qualified to teach yourselves, but you're content to just sit and allow someone to keep teaching you. Which means you're not really listening to the teaching to begin with. You just come in, you sit, you get what you need, and you go. You're not paying attention. And he says, it's kind of like somebody who grows, who, who's supposedly growing up, but they continue to just live off of a diet of milk. You're not eating meat. By now, you should be on a diet of meat. You know, when you're an infant, all you get is milk or pureed food, which is gross. Except the banana one. It's kind of good. The rest of them are, like, nasty. They're so gross. He says, by now, you should be eating meat. But if you're 16 years old sitting at the table and your mom starts to cut up all the food so that you get the perfect little bite and you don't choke, he said, there's a problem with that. At some point, it's time to grow up. At some point, it's time to step up. At some point, it's time to mature. And he's grabbing us. He said, pay attention. It's time. It's time for us to grow up and mature. He says, it's like going to a Ruth's Chris Steakhouse and having an invitation to eat a perfect filet and saying, I'd rather go to White Castle and have heartburn for six weeks. Like, what are you doing? He said, all of this is made so available to you. And the reason we know that he's really just calling them out is because that phrase, dull of hearing, in verse 11, literally translates to lazy ears. Lazy ears, meaning you've had a perfect opportunity to sit under good teaching, to allow it to influence you and call you to maturity, and you have deliberately, willfully chosen not to. See, this is not so much about them not having the chance to mature, not having the resources made available to them to mature. This is about them deciding that they did not want to grow up. They did not have a desire. I had a seminary professor who wrote a book on Hebrews. His name's Jeff Snell, and he says this, a lack of spiritual interest leads to a lack of spiritual growth. You begin to lose the interest in growing spiritually, then you're not going to grow. You grow in the areas that you desire to grow in. That's where you mature and you grow up. So a hard question for us to wrestle with. This is, I had to wrestle with it, so I joyfully share it with you. As I studied this passage, one of the questions I really had to wrestle with is this. Like, do you really have an interest in hearing from God? I mean, really, and I can't answer that for you. Do you have an interest in, in hearing from God? And if you do, if you'd say, well, yeah, I want to hear from God, does your life reflect that interest in, in hearing from Him? I mean, are you hungry to hear from God's Word? Are you eating it up? Are you paying attention to it? Are you loving being exposed to it? Are you willing to get uncomfortable and step out of your comfort zone to draw closer to God? Are you willing to let go of preferences? Are you willing, here's a scary one, are we willing to get vulnerable and really deal with our sin that's keeping us from Him? To be really, really honest about where we're at so that we can grow closer to Him and mature. He continues in verse 14, Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So he says, constantly going to God's word, constantly training your mind and your heart to think the way that God wants you to think. Uh, Eugene Peterson tells the story of going to Montana where his family would vacation often. And he said he had this little dog, and I don't know what kind of dog. I call the little mini dogs rat dogs, uh, but they're, like a, they're still better than a cat, but it's a dog. Uh, and the dog, no emails, please. I'm sorry. I apologize now. Sorry, 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 sorry. And the little dog ran out into the woods and it came dragging these bones from this animal. 
And so he walks up, and he's not sure what the dog's chewing on. He knows it's bones. He doesn't know if it's good or bad for him. He reaches down to take the bone away, and he notices the dog is literally salivating over the bone. And he's, he's like growling over the bone, and when he reaches for the bone, the dog barks at him. And he's like, the dog never barked at me. And he says, in that moment, it hit me that I should view the word of God like that. I'm salivating over it. I just can't wait to get into it and learn from it. And anyone who tries to take it from me, I'm going to bark at you because this is my source of life. The question here is mature people desire to learn from God's word. They desire to grow. They desire to be challenged to take their next step in Christian maturity. He continues, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and grow on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. This is a confusing text, because what he's not saying is, hey, it's time to mature in Christ and move on past these elementary doctrines where you don't need them anymore. He's not telling us that somehow you'll get to this place of enlightenment where you won't need to focus on grace or the basic elements of the gospel. That's not what he's telling us. What he is saying, though, is if you'll spend time understanding the basic elements of grace, you will mature and grow on to understanding more of what God's doing. One illustration would be this. Many of us are confused by the Old Testament, but the more time you spend in Scripture, the more time you realize that your Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. And you begin, as you mature in Christ, to move on past just the elementary things, to see God moving in each and every page of the Scriptures, elevating and lifting up the name of Jesus. You begin to see the big picture of what God's doing in the world. The way I'd like to say it is you really develop a lens that you start to interpret all of life through. Like every part of your life is coming through this lens that's defined by Jesus because it's not just the little elementary things. You don't just come, let me challenge us today, you don't just come and sit in a seat on Sunday staring at a stage and go on with your life looking forward to the next Sunday. So you can get one or two more principles. You say, no, this helps me, but my best time with God is when I open his word and it just comes to life and I, I just get to eat from this incredible, this incredible meat, this feast of maturity. Now, the hard part is we live in a culture, and maybe you've met somebody like this, that maybe you've met someone that lives by this motto, but we live in a culture that says, what's the least I can do to get what I want? So maybe you've met someone who lives by this motto. What's the least amount of effort I need to put into this to get what I want out of this? You met somebody like that? I think that works when you go to the gym, right? What's the least amount of work I got to put into this, this workout to get what I want out of it? Maybe it works on a diet, like... What's the least amount of these vegetables that I got to eat to get to the health that I want to have, right? What's the least amount at this part-time job that I have to kind of get to this goal? What's the least amount of effort I got to put in? But it doesn't work in areas that require commitment and maturity. What would it have been like on June 2nd, 2006, at this church in this place if I'd have shown up on my wedding day? And I'd have gone up to Sarah before the ceremony, and I'd have said, hey, Sarah, before we go through this, I got a question for you. What's the least amount of effort I got to put into this thing to be a good husband? Like, before we get to this commitment thing, just tell me, what's the least amount of work I got to put into this to be the husband that you, quote, unquote, need me to be? Like, what, what is it? What's the least amount of work? It doesn't work. It doesn't work for your life with God either. You don't come to Jesus and say, Jesus, what's the least amount of my life that I got to include you in to get by in this spiritual maturity thing? That's just not true, because as you mature, you learn... But maturity requires commitment, and commitment will always cost you. Good marriages are not marriages that are selfish, but selfless. 
that sacrifice and that give. And the same is true in your relationship with Jesus. It is best defined by what you give, not what you get. What you give up. What you allow him to work. What you allow him to, to change and to discipline in your life so that you become who he needs you to be to do what he needs you to do. You see, it doesn't go the other way around. You don't do what he needs you to do, and then he makes you into something. He's shaping you and forming you. One author said the sum of the Christian life is the art of becoming. It's about becoming who he needs you to be, and then he'll produce what he needs to produce. You need to become the good soil. Now he moves on as he continues to describe his Christian life in verse 4. For it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and have then fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. This is a really hard passage to interpret. There's a lot of views on how to interpret this passage. One, uh, one theological view, there's really three dominant views on how to view this passage. One view that people will read this passage or passages like it, they'll say, okay, well, theologically, once you're saved, you're always saved. So maybe you've heard that phrase, once saved, always saved. And they'll say, this is true because of passages like John chapter 10, where Jesus says, nothing will snatch my people out of my hand. I've got many people that, in my life that believe this theology. They'll say, once you're saved, you're always saved, which means if someone has fallen away, that they were never genuinely saved to begin with. And so they'll, they'll believe that. That's one stance. Here on the other side, though, the extreme opposite of once saved, always saved, is this idea of once you're apostate, you're always apostate. And what they mean by that is this. Once uh, you, you can be saved, you absolutely can experience salvation, you can willfully choose to reject that salvation, but if you do that, you can never be restored to salvation again. And so the, the issue with both of these views, once saved, always saved, and once apostate, always apostate, is that the Bible doesn't support either one. See, our passage today clearly indicates that the people he's writing to were Christians. Look at the language in verse 4. They've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. And they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. They clearly had experienced salvation and had willfully chosen to, fo to fall away from that, to walk away from that gift of salvation. So while God did not snatch them, allow anyone to snatch them out of his hand, he did not allow that. And God did not lose them, but instead remains faithful and can hold any Christian through any trial at all. God can do that. He does not remove our ability to willfully choose to reject and thereby lose the salvation that we had once participated in. He doesn't take away our choices. He doesn't remove the ability to choose to walk away. Now, on the flip side, if you find a Christian who has walked away from the faith, the Bible is very clear that they can return to the faith. The text that we're studying today says, and this is the text that's usually quoted by this stance, they'll say it's impossible to restore them because they're crucifying the Lord. Well, it's written in a certain tense. 
It's the present perfect tense, meaning it's an ongoing crucifying of the Lord. Meaning, while they're participating in their sin, while they're actually doing the sin that has led them away from the Lord, they cannot be brought to repentance in the midst of that sin because their heart is not prepared to repent. But if they would come away from that sin and their heart would be prepared, then the Lord would allow them to repent. Now, let me illustrate for you using the Bible. The best illustration of the Bible is the Bible. If you grew up in church, maybe you've heard, remember the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal son. Okay, he told a story of a prodigal son. If you don't know this story, uh, the prodigal son, he was in the home with the family. He left. He squandered his inheritance. He got caught up in sin and then came back home. And it's this beautiful story that's retold in a hundred different ways in literature and movies and stories all over the place. What's fascinating, though, is when you turn to Luke chapter 15 and begin to read this story, the beginning of the prodigal son, he's not a prodigal. The beginning of the story, this is not an evangelistic story. The son is not a prodigal son when the story begins. He is living in the home. He is a full heir to his father's inheritance. He is a complete part of the family. And then he willfully chooses to leave that family. He had a choice. You can stay in the home or you can leave. It is up to you. He leaves the home. He goes and squanders the inheritance in sin. And as Jesus tells this story, he describes the son while squandering the inheritance as though he's dead. He says he's like he's dead. And then if you, Luke chapter 15, verse 24, at the end of the story, Jesus describes this once dead son as being alive again. So here's the point. The author of Hebrews is saying this. When it comes to your salvation, you need to take it very seriously. This is not a flimsy thing to just throw around and not take seriously. Take it very seriously because maturity is essential. This is why the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 wrote, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Those are the Apostle Paul's words. Fear and trembling does not mean terror the way that we would think it does. Like, oh, I'm scared. If I don't do the right thing, he's going to... That's not what it means. Fear and trembling is an earnest desire to mature and to grow. Losing your salvation is not like losing your keys. You're not like, Jesus who? Like, it doesn't, like, it doesn't happen that way. It is a very intentional concentrated, on-purpose decision to walk away from something that was made available to you. But one of the best things about studying Scripture is to learn that biblical warnings are intended to wake us up. They're intended to grab us and say, pay attention. And they're always wrapped in grace. They're always wrapped in hope. Look at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, this really strong warning, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of even better things. We don't, we don't see you headed down this direction. He says, why? Because things, these better things, things of salvation, verse 10, for God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. This sincerity you have in the way that you're living and serving. And we desire each one of you to show that same earnestness, that same desire to mature and to grow, to have that full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the, the author is saying, I, I want to encourage you to stay alive toward maturity in Christ. Like, pay attention. The Bible uses a theological word to describe maturity in Christ. It says sanctification. Everybody say sanctification. sanctification. Okay, it means to mature in Christ. The best definition I've heard of sanctification is to get used to justification. 
To be justified means that your sins have been forgiven. You were once dead in sin, now you're alive in Christ. The best way to mature in Christ is to put the things in your life, to put the people in your life, to put all these things in your life that continue to keep you blown away, mesmerized by the fact that the God of the universe forgave you of your sin. That though you were dead in Christ, the God of the universe rose you to life and to continue to be blown away. It's when that truth begins to get dull in our hearts that we're in trouble. And we're headed down a wrong path. And so we need to put things in our life to keep us excited about the fact that God has uh, forgiven us and restored us. And so the question that I want to leave you with is this. What do we do in a culture that says, what's the least I got to do to get by, Jesus? Hey, Jesus, what's the least I got to do to live a Christian life? What's the least I got to do where I don't have to give up my comfort and sacrifices? What is the least that I have to accomplish in order to be considered a maturing, growing Christian? What do we do? And I tried really hard to make these like super awesome, attractive like application points, and I come down to these two simple things. The first one is this. Take your sin seriously. I mean, really consider what sin does to your heart and your life. Like, really think about the fact that it is destroying you. Let the weight of sin wear heavy on your heart. Let it, let, just understand how it corrupts and kills and hurts. I, let me illustrate it this way. I've never met anyone with arachnophobia to the level that my wife has it in my life. My wife hates spiders. Anybody with her? We got a few. All right. She can't stand spiders. She doesn't want to be around spiders. She wants nothing to do with spiders. If she has a spider in the house, if she walks into a room and sees a spider, she will leave that room, close the door, call me, and say, you're going spider hunting when you get home. Like, I'm not going in the room. I'm not going to use it for what it's... She hates it. I didn't tell her this, but let me make it even more intense for you. Um, I, she learned this in first service. I don't know if you read the story this week of the lady in Georgia. There's a lady in Georgia, bought a house with her husband. They close on the house, they move into the house, and they find 30 brown recluse spiders in the house. In the house. Like, whoa. So they interviewed her, and they're like, hey, what are you going to do? Like, burn the house down? Like, what else is there to do? It's a loss. Like, we want nothing to do with these spiders. See, what's interesting about this is, let, let me make the point. When it comes to spiders, my wife doesn't say, how close can I get before it touches me? How close can I get before I have to like, just be mesmerized by it? When it comes to spiders, my wife is like, how far can I get? I want nothing to do with this. I hate these things. I wish they weren't created. I don't know what good they do for the world. Get them out of here. They're the worst thing ever. See, that's the way we should view sin. The sins that are tempting us, that are destroying our families, that are destroying our lives, that are causing us not to mature and grow in Christ, we should not say, how close can I get to that sin before it's sin? How close can I get to this before it actually starts to cause damage? We should say, how far away do I need to get from this? And here's the thing, you can't do it alone. You're not strong enough. Isolation prevents maturity. Absolutely prevents it. This is why when my wife sees spiders, she calls me. You're going to come and kill the spider so I can have a normal life again. Right? The same way, when you have a sin that is just struggling, you're struggling with it, you don't try to handle it by yourself. You call someone else and say, I need some help. I need to be accountable. Because I want my heart to develop a hatred for the sin that is separating me from the one who loves me. And I'm willing to do anything you tell me to do to get as far away from that sin as I possibly can. It's about submission. Take your sin seriously. The next thing is this. Take Jesus seriously. 
take Jesus seriously, the hope that is in Christ, the promise that is in Christ, the desire. He said, I leave so I can send a helper to live in you, to help you mature, to help you grow, to help you take those next steps in Christ. I desire the best for you, John chapter 10, verse 10, where he says, I have come to give them life and that they may have it abundantly. He wants you to experience a great life, but it involves maturity, which is painful at times because it requires commitment and commitment will always cost you. Jesus, though, he wants you to understand that he is not just about saving you. He's about changing everything about you. He's about changing everything about your life. Let me illustrate it this way. We, we relate to people in four different ways. We are, we're relational in four dominant ways. All right, so appease me. Everybody point up. up. Okay, you relate to God. You have a relationship with God, okay? But in addition to that, as a human being, you have other relationships. Everybody point in, okay? You can do the two thumbs, this guy. You can do whatever you want. You have a relationship with yourself. You see yourself a certain way. You relate to yourself a certain way. Everybody point to the people next to you. You relate to the people seated next to you. You relate to them and how you interact with them. Everybody point down. You relate to creation and all of life, where you work, what you do, how you interact with people. And here's the thing. Sin, when it enters your life, when it enters the world, it corrupted all four of those, not just the relationship you have with God. But when Jesus... His sacrifice is counted for you. When you become a Christian, he does not just redeem the relationship you have with God. He changes the relationship you have with yourself. He changes how you relate to other people. He changes how you interact in the world. He is about changing everything about you, not just one thing about you. Jesus needs to become the lens that you interpret all of life through, and that's about maturing and taking your steps. Look, everyone in this room is in one of two places. You're either seated in full submission to Christ. Meaning, I've evaluated the claims of Jesus. I believe he is the Son of God. I believe that his sacrifice takes away my sins. I've given my life to Christ in the waters of baptism. I've received the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of my sins. And I'm not perfect. I have bad days, bad seasons. I wrestle with doubt. I wrestle with sin. But I'm pursuing him. And I want him to help me submit these areas of my life through the work of his Spirit in my life. Not perfect, but on a journey toward him. You're either seated in submission to the lordship of Jesus or you're standing in defiance of him. And you're saying, no, I will not submit. This area of my life is mine and it's not yours. Or you've never come to know Jesus as your savior to begin with. But here's the thing. At this point, remember, he says they are close to being cursed. Verse 11 says, when you're separated from Christ, you're close to being cursed, but close isn't finished. So the seat's still open. And at any time that you're ready, you can come and begin to submit areas of your life. If you are a Christian, if you've already become a Christian and you've fallen away, he's saying you can come back and repent. When your heart is ready, you can come back and repent and begin to submit your life to him. If you've not been a Christian, he says the invitation is open to you to submit your life to the lordship of Jesus. But here's the thing, the decision is yours. This past week, um, Last weekend, Ryan King, Catherine, his wife Catherine and myself, we traveled to Colorado. We're taking a class, and you meet different places, and so we got to go to Colorado for this class. And when we got there, soundtracks are good. That's cool. Uh, when we got there, um, they'll tell you, you talk about immaturity. I was extremely immature. I'm like, oh, stop, I got to take a picture. Stop, oh, this is incredible. Oh, this is blown away. I've never seen anything like it. And we, we take this class, and then we go uh, to hike the Garden of the Gods, and then we go to the Rocky Mountain National Park, and I'm looking at these mountains, and I'm blown away, and I took a million pictures, and I'm like, this is beautiful. I may or may not have said I'd rather go here than the beach, but I don't want any of you to remind me of that. It was incredible. 
blew my mind. I get home, I'm sitting with my kids, and I'm like, oh, you guys are going to love this. I'm showing them pictures, and they're like, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. I'm like, what? Like, you're missing out on how incredible it is, and here's why. Because for them, it was just a picture. It's just a picture. They couldn't experience it, the, the majesty of it, the beauty of it, because for them, it was just a picture. I can paint a really good picture for you with a sermon. But it's not your reality yet. I can paint a really good picture and make you want something, but the choice is yours. I can paint a really good picture with a sermon like we're supposed to, and I think it's really good because it can guide you. I can paint a really good picture to get you to desire to repent and change things in your life, but it can be just a picture until it's your experience. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves and whether or not you're really in the faith. The choice to follow Jesus and to take steps of maturity is yours. Let's pray.